For those visiting with us, this is our time and our service. One of the times where we hear from God as he speaks to us through his word. And so I'm going to read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll work our way through this passage. Um, So we've been going through the Gospel of John. We took a little break, well, maybe more than a little break, a long break from the Gospel of John, but uh, we're back in it. Um, We're plodding our way through the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, verses, uh, I'm going to read verse 21 uh, through 30. Pastor Dale read 18 to 20 already. John chapter 13, verse 21. Also, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably a church Bible somewhere in the pew in front of you, hopefully. John chapter 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, omnipotent, we come before you and ask for your help. We pray that you would work through your word, speak to us, but Lord, we also recognize that we need hearts that are ready to receive and believe what you have said. And so, Lord, give us a heart of faith. May your word be united in our hearts by faith both for those who have never believed and both in, as well as for those who already believe, that you would grow our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been shocked to discover that someone whom you thought was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ turns away from the Lord permanently? Last year or the past couple years, much of the evangelical world was shocked by the reality of a guy by the name of Josh Harris, who was the successor of C.J. Mahaney, 
at uh, one of the large Sovereign Grace Ministries churches in Gaithersburg, Maryland, when he publicly turned away from the Lord. I think he's an agnostic or an atheist these days. Perhaps even the revelation of someone like Ravi Zacharias, who for so many years contended for the Christian faith in the public arena, and then after his death it comes out that he was living a double life of wickedness. These kinds of things can knock the wind out of us. Can even sometimes cause us to question our own faith in the Lord. Well, something similar, it's, it's really not a new phenomenon, because something similar happened during Jesus' day with none other than Judas Iscariot. And the Apostle John wants us to understand that despite the reality of Judas and Satan lurking behind the scenes and opposing what Jesus is doing, the mission will and must continue on. In fact, those who oppose the mission merely become clogs in the wheel that continues to grind in the mission of God. And despite their desires to oppose the mission of God and the mission of Jesus, they merely do his bidding. And this really is part of the portrait of Jesus that John is painting, that despite all the opposition, Jesus is in total control of the situation. Let's pick up the story. It's, this is the last, I, I, I believe it's either the Last Supper or a night before the Last Supper. It's that week Jesus is going to the cross. This is the upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 17, is the time in which he spends devoted to his own followers, teaching them, instructing them. <laughs> and at the outset of this meal, he did something shocking that we saw last week, right? He begins to go around the table and wash the feet of these disciples. And this becomes a parable, a picture of what he's going to do later that week as he serves sinners by dying upon the cross. And also a point of instruction for his disciples how they are to relate to one another. And so it's in the aftermath of this that Jesus has dropped hints that there is a betrayer in their midst. After all, he said in the previous verses that there was one among them who was not clean. Because remember in that interaction with Peter, he said that he was clean already. He didn't need a full bath. And in 13... 10... It says, he who is bathed needs only to wash, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And then Jesus drops this hint, but not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus drops this hint that not all of them were clean. Probably a comment that just kind of went right over the head of the disciples. They weren't always the most cognitively acute group. And so let's pick it up in verse 18. 
Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones who, the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus makes this statement here that not all of them are really of Jesus. That while he has chosen them, there is one who, as he quotes Psalm 41 verse 9, who has lifted up his heel against Jesus. Even though he was in the presence of Jesus, having table fellowship with him. We'll talk more about that citation from Psalm 41.9 later on in the message. But, But Jesus quotes this passage as an indication that there was one in their midst who was not of them, and we know this to be Judas Iscariot. Now, little is known about Judas's life before he became an apostle. He was evidently the father of Simon Iscariot. This suggests that Judas was from the village of Kirioth, uh, which is either the one in Moab or more likely the one that was in southern part of Judah. He was only one of the 12 who was from Galilee, the southern part of Israel. I'm sorry, the northern part. Wait, I'm getting my directions confused here. He was, he was the only one who was not Galilean. I read my notes wrong. He was from the southern part of Judah. He was the only one who was not from the northern part, Galilean. And evidently, the other disciples trusted him implicitly. I mean, after all, we know that he was the one who was the treasurer. So he must have, been, he must have demonstrated a measure of trustworthiness among them. Remember, he was the one in chapter 12 who, when Mary of Bethany had anointed Jesus with that very expensive perfume, he was the one who piped up and said, you know, this is outrageous. This expensive perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. But then John comments that that's not really what was going on with Judas. That wasn't really his concern. He was one who was pilfering from the money bag. We also get an indication of his love of money by the reality that uh, he didn't just betray Jesus, he made sure he got something out of it, namely 30 pieces of silver. Jesus cites Psalm 41, this business of lifting up the heel against Jesus, Now, it's hard to know, what does this mean, lifted up his heel against? Could mean that someone who just walked out away from Jesus um, could be lifted up the heel, you know, you go to kick somebody, you you lift up your heel, a a horse might kick an enemy, or I've heard zebras can kill a lion by back-kicking them with their heels, or it can mean the reality that in ancient Near Eastern culture, as well as in Middle Eastern culture today, if you show the bottom of your foot towards somebody, that is the equivalent of putting up the number one sign with your middle metacarpal finger. 
either way, it clearly is something that's not good, right? It's something that uh, one who is in close table fellowship is, is doing something that is horribly betraying and insulting. Verse 19. <clears throat> From now on, Jesus says, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he, whoever receives He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. More on that statement later. Verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. So notice in verse 21 here, Jesus becomes troubled in spirit. Despite the reality that this is a fulfillment of prophecy, despite the reality that this is all part of the cosmic plan, Jesus emotively is troubled by the reality that one of them is going to betray him. Andreas Kostenberger says, In this present passage, Jesus' emotions are shown to be in a state of turmoil. His whole inner self convulsing at the thought of one of his closest followers betraying him to his enemies. Verse 22. Jesus began looking... I'm sorry, the disciples began looking one another. After Jesus drops this bombshell in their lap and states plainly, he's been hinting at it prior to this, but now he states plainly, one of you will betray me. Now, again, keep in mind, they're all lying down at this supper and Jesus informs them that one of them is going to betray him. And at this point, the disciples begin looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. So they're kind of mentally going through the roll call, you know? Is it Peter? Is it John? Is it Andrew? Is it who is it? Is it Simon the Zealot? <coughs> We know from the other gospel writers that uh, there was this uh, self-examination. Is it I, Lord? There was this self-doubting. Verse 23, and there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. So now we're given this tidbit here. As they're all, they would have been lying on their left side eating with their right hand. Remember, it's a, it's a flat table. I think we got a picture here. It was probably in a U-shape, this flat, low-lying table. And they, they wouldn't, again, just to remind you, in case you weren't here last week, they wouldn't have been sitting on chairs at a high table. It was a low table. They would have been lying on their left side, eating with their right hand. So if it says here, the one whom Jesus loved was lying on Jesus' chest, where would this disciple have been? He'd been on Jesus' right side, okay? 
And almost certainly, this is John the Apostle, the author of this gospel here. Okay? And more than likely, by the way, we, keep, we don't know for certain, but more than likely, there was probably three of these kinds of U-shaped tables. There probably wasn't one big, large one uh, in order for, for 13 of them to be able to, to be around a table. It would have had to been an extremely large table, which would have been rare. It was more than likely three smaller U-shaped tables. And so there's probably four or five at each of these tables. John is to the right of Jesus, lying on his chest. And this next part is, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> because remember the context. Peter has already shoved his foot in his mouth numerous occasions already at this dinner, right? And so instead of Peter speaking up again. Notice what he does in verse 24. So Simon Peter gestured to Jesus, gestured to him saying, tell us who it is whom he is speaking. In other words, so he, you can just imagine P Peter motioning to John, John, ask him who it is, ask him who it is. <laughs> or maybe it's like, you know, So he's gesturing to John, <coughs> and uh, verse 25, it says, he, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, on his chest, he said to him, Lord, who is it? So John is close enough to Jesus. Now, we don't know if Peter was at another table, but, but evidently Peter wasn't close enough. And so John, who's, the, you know, who's on his right side, very close to Jesus, asks him. And so Jesus' response is in verse 26. Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, evidently, what's going on here, when Jesus responds to John, he doesn't shout it out so that everybody, all the disciples, understood what was going on here. And so evidently, it was probably only John who heard him. And Jesus says, the one whom I dip this morsel, this small piece of bread, and there was probably a, a, a kind of concoction here. I think it was called the cheroseth. It was, a, it was a sweet mixture with bitter herbs and maybe some sour vinegar in it. It was a kind of dipping sauce. And uh, Jesus says, the one whom I dip this morsel, this is the one who is going to betray me. Now, again, keep in mind, they're lying down. If, this, if Jesus hands this morsel to Judas, what does that more than likely indicate about where Judas was lying? If John is lying on his right, in order for Jesus to be able to reach, it would have been the person immediately to his left, which may not seem like a whole lot to us, but the seat to the left 
of the main host was considered a position of honor. Judas is in a seat of honor. Not only that, this business of sharing the morsel is, is a, a way of showing kindness. Craig Keener says, according to ancient tradition, one showed greater honor to the person seated to one's left because, and this is important, one's left side was more vulnerable to assault. Hence, one showed greater trust. Sharing the same table or couch would have certainly been an honored position in any case. But if the beloved disciple held the position on Jesus' right, the position to the left most likely went to the person, the other person to whom Jesus could easily hand the food, namely Judas. And so this position at Jesus' back would have been the trusted position, the, the position, the least likely one to stab you in the back. This is like the left tackle to the right-handed quarterback, you know? You want the left tackle to be your most trusted offensive lineman, you know, uh, because you don't want to get blindsided as the quarterback. So, shockingly, it's the one who is at the seat of honor, the one who is in a trusted position. This is the one who's going to betray Jesus. Verse 27, after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus gives an order to Judas knowing what's going on here, knowing that what, Jesus, what Judas is going to do is going to deliver Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders who are going to deliver him into the hands of the Roman officials, which is going to lead to Jesus' execution. And Jesus, is, and as John records this, he's portraying Jesus in total control of the situation. Even the opposition, even this dastardly deed of Judas, Jesus is the one who gives them, him the order. Go do it. Get it done with. Clearly acknowledging Jesus' acceptance of the mission. The mission to go to the cross. Jesus willing to lay down his life. As he says on that earlier occasion in John chapter 10, no man takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus in total control of the situation. Verse 28, now one of those reclining, I'm sorry, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to, uh, he had said this to him. So, so the other disciples are, are totally oblivious. Maybe they didn't hear. Maybe they just didn't understand. Verse 29, for some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. And then verse 30. 
So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And John says, and it was night. John tells us it was night, not merely because he's concerned about when sunset was that evening, but we can't help but think that the darkness that was outside was indicative of the darkness that existed in the heart of Judas Iscariot. So what's John trying to teach us from this passage? I think, as I've alluded to already, he wants us to understand that Jesus is in total control of the situation. He's gonna, we're going to look at three evidences that despite the opposition to Jesus, the mission of Jesus will be accomplished. Three evidences. The first evidence is the prophetic pattern that points to the purpose of God. The prophetic pattern that points to the purpose of God. We saw this back in verse 18. Before this dialogue, this interaction takes place at this supper, in verse 18 it says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones uh, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus here cites Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9 is a psalm of David. David was king in Israel. David was given a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would have a line of descendants, a dynasty. You remember that occasion where he said, I want to build a house for God. And initially, Nathaniel says, that sounds like a great idea. But then God speaks to Nathaniel, the prophet, and, and Nathaniel goes back to David and says, no, you're not going to build a house for God, David. God is going to build a house for you, a, a dynasty in which there will be a forever king upon a forever throne of David. But David, as you know, experienced opposition to his kingship on various occasions. And almost certainly Psalm 41 is referring to a time, a season in David's life where he was almost dethroned. He was almost dethroned by his own son, Absalom. Remember, Absalom began courting favor from the people and sowing seeds of of discontent and disgruntlement and, 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 and David's polling numbers kept plummeting. His favor was going down with the people and then eventually Absalom made his move but he needed some players to betray their allegiance to David and one of those betrayers was a guy by the name of Ahithophel, one of David's closest companions, one of David's closest friends, a lifelong advisor. Ahithophel switched allegiance. And almost certainly in Psalm 41.9, David is referring to Ahithophel when it says in, in, in 41.9, my, my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel <coughs> against me. 
And, and so what Jesus does here in citing Psalm 49 is saying, here is a prophetic pattern that Judas is fulfilling. A prophetic pattern which both of these men stand in opposition to the plans and purpose of God. Both of these men were standing in opposition to the throne of David. Both of these men who were trusted and in close communion with the king betray the king. Both of these men will not succeed in their opposition to the throne. And both of these men, in the midst of their own guilt, will take their own lives. And that's exactly what happens. Judas becomes Ahithophel 2.0, opposing the throne of David, seeking to oppose the purposes of God, but merely becomes a clog in the wheel of the mission of God that triumphs on. And again, this teaches us that this, <coughs> this was all part of the plan. This was all part of God's sovereign plan. That there would be one who would oppose the promised Messiah. There would be one who would seek to undo the mission. But he would not succeed. Now this is very important because this teaches us a principle taught over and over in Scripture. That God is sovereign over all things, even the wicked responsible choices of men and women. The theologians call it compatibilism. You're wondering what that word was in the title of this morning's message. Compatibilism. And all it means, it's quite simple. It means that God's absolute sovereignty over this universe is compatible with the real responsible choices of human beings. It doesn't necessarily try to explain it, but it refuses to explain away the absolute sovereignty of God and it refuses to explain away the real responsible choices of human beings. It lets the tension stand. If you want a weighty, almost incomprehensible book to read on the topic, you can read Jonathan Edwards' Freedom of the Will. And this is what we see here. Because, my friends, Judas could not say on the day of judgment, well, God, you know, I was part of the plan, you know, after all, you know. I mean, if it wasn't for me, you know, but you wouldn't have died on the cross and sinners wouldn't be saved. Satan could not say on the day of judgment, well, God, you know, I, you know, I was just, I was doing your sovereign will. No. Both Satan lurking behind the scenes, seducing Judas, and Judas himself was making real choices that were rooted in his own wicked desires as he was looking at the, the plan of Jesus and what was taking place and him thinking that he was there was going to be an earthly kingdom and he was going to be a part of it and he was going to make lots of money off of it and he sees this plan 
being foiled as Jesus is going to the cross. And he already had in his heart a love of money. He was clearly pilfering from the money bag. He's beginning to consider, how can I make the best out of this rotten situation? How can I make some money out of this deal? I got a good idea. Those evil Pharisees, they want Jesus' head on a platter. I will deliver him over to them. And the next time we see Judas... It's the Garden of Gethsemane, and he identifies Jesus with a kiss, the kiss of Judas, the kiss of death. Judas was making real, responsible choices, and he has hell to pay for it. But all the responsible, even the evil, wicked choices of man and women bow to the sovereign purposes of God. We say, how is that possible? Doesn't that make us robots? Evidently not. The two are compatible. We say, wow, Matt, this is some pretty heady theology this morning. And it is. I can't wrap my brain around it. But yet it's so very important that we understand this. Because there are so many forces in this world that run full throttle against the revealed will of God, against God's will, against God's ways. And we need to understand that God's plan and purpose triumphs on. Then no one undoes God's purpose. They merely serve God's purpose. I mean, that's exactly what's taking place here. Judas and Satan behind Judas is serving the purpose of God unwittingly. It's like that passage in Isaiah chapter 10 when God speaks of Assyria as the rod of my anger, though they will it not. God was using ancient Assyria as the hammer of his justice and punishment upon different nations, but they weren't willing participants. But yet God was using it for his purposes. It's like that old spiritual... He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got everything in his hands. Nothing escapes his hands. So when someone mistreats you and justice seems far away, Jesus has everything in his hands. When the doctor calls with bad news, a horrible diagnosis, a horrible prognosis, Jesus has it in his hands. When your boss unexpectedly gives you a pink slip and your income is terminated, Jesus has it in his hands. When you've been faithful to teach your children and to be an example to them. And they thumb their nose up at the Almighty 
and choose the way of this world. Jesus has it in his hands. When you pledge your love to another in holy matrimony, and that person is unfaithful to you and abandons the marriage covenant, he's got the whole world in his hands. When every waking thought is consumed by worry and anxiety over the health of a child or over what's going on in this world, he's got the whole world in his hands. When your 401k plunges with signs of no recovery and you just see inflation climbing, 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 he's got the whole world in his hands. When a friend seeks popularity by airing out all your dirty laundry, he's got the whole world in his hands. You see, friends, you can trust this God no matter what your circumstances in life are, you can know that he is working his sovereign and good purposes behind the scenes in whatever trials, whatever evils you encounter, he's got the whole world in his hands. But not only the prophetic pattern that points to the purpose of God, the prophecy of Jesus that points to the person of Jesus Verse 19, we glossed over it intentionally. From now on, Jesus says, I am telling you. So so he's just said that he, he knows his own. He's chosen his own, but one of them is going to betray him. From now on, Jesus says, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it occurs, you may believe that I am. Now, most of your translations supply the heat. But thankfully, the New American Standard 95 and the Legacy Standard Bible, they have an italicized he, which tells you that the translators supply it, which means it's not in the original language. And so it would be better read, Jesus is telling them this before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. It's not the first time we've seen Jesus say things like this in the Gospel of John. We saw in chapter 6 and verse 20, remember when Jesus, there's a storm in the midst of the Sea of Galilee after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is strolling along on top of the water and the, and, and the disciples think it's a ghost, right? And they're wetting their tunics. And Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. For some reason, the New American Standard botches that one in that instance, and it's, it translates it, it is I, but it's literally, I am, do not be afraid. We saw it in chapter 8, and verse 24, therefore Jesus says, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In 8.28, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am. <clears throat> Perhaps more familiar, John 8.58, before Abraham was born, 
I am. You getting the picture here? That there are multiple times, at least seven times in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am, period. I am. And this is an illusion, especially in this passage here. This is an illusion back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 40 through 48, I just love Isaiah 40 through 48. If you ever have some spare time, go back there and read Isaiah 40 through 48 because it's a section that is rich in who God is. But in the midst of that section, the prophet Isaiah is mocking. He's mocking the false gods that Israel was constantly being seduced by. And he's mocking not only the false gods, but the false prophets of those gods. And one of the ways in which he he mocks the false religions and the false gods is that he says, who is like me? Who is it who can say things that are going to happen before they happen? Uh, Listen to a couple of these passages. Isaiah 43, verse 9 and 10. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Who can say things as if they've happened in the past, but they happen in the future? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Before me, no God was formed, and there was none after me. We see the same thing in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end, I'm saying what's, what's going to happen way back in the future, not way back, way forward in the future. I'm declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Same thing, Ezekiel 24, 24. Ezekiel, thus Ezekiel says, this will be assigned to you according to all that he has done. You will. When it comes, then you will know I am Yahweh God. In other words, the God of Israel distinguishes himself from all the other false gods, false religions, false idols, false prophets by saying, look, this is going to happen here. 100 years down the road, 700 years down. And, and I mean, Isaiah has these kinds of prophecies. Did you know Isaiah prophesies Cyrus? I mean, they're making movies about Cyrus even today, that great Persian emperor. And it calls him out by name. Calls him out by name hundreds of years before he's even born. How about Isaiah 53? Our young people have memorized this. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was bruised for our iniquity. He He was bruised for our trespasses. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. 700 years before Jesus is born. Virgin birth prophesied. And so fast forward, we are in John 13. 
Jesus says, I'm, I'm gonna tell you it's gonna happen before it happens, this business about Judas, so that when it happens, you won't have the wind knocked out of you, but instead you'll know I am. And again, the I am references in Isaiah go back to what? Exodus chapter three, Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, whom shall I say is sending me? What if I get to the Hebrews and say, who are you and who sent you? Yahweh, God of Israel, speaks from the burning bush, I am that I am. And so shockingly, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna tell you how this thing's gonna go down so that when it goes down, you don't get the wind knocked out of you, but you understand, I am Yahweh, God of Israel. Friends, again, this is hugely important. It's hugely important because, again, back to what I said in the introduction. I mean, sometimes people we think are faithful followers of Jesus wind up being frauds. <laughs> this one who evidently was in a trusted position, Judas, is going to demonstrate himself to be the ultimate betrayer, the ultimate backstabber, right to the left of Jesus, right in Jesus' back. And you can imagine the disciples wondering, what's going on here? Our whole world's being turned upside down. But notice what Jesus says, and I, and I skipped over this verse as well. <coughs> in John 13, verse 20, after he says, I'm saying it's going to happen before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, he who, re- uh, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And, and all week I was scratching my head, why on earth, why does Jesus drop this verse in here? But again, I think if you remember the context, these are the future apostles. And again, their wind would be knocked out of them when Judas betrayed Jesus. And this would lead to the cross. But Jesus is saying here, the mission goes on. Whoever receives you receives the one who sent you. I'm sending you. Don't be confused by this. The mission goes on. The purpose goes on. The message of Jesus and what I came to do goes on. And so again, friends, this is important. Don't be deterred. Don't get the wind knocked out of you when Heroes of yours compromise. People turn away from the Lord. But we be resolved that the mission continues on and this is all part of the plan. Also, we see another indication here of the things that set the God of the Bible apart from every other religion in the world. The Hadith tells us that Muhammad demonstrates that he was a prophet because he had a big hairy mole on his back. Now I'm sure there's many a man in this room has a big hairy mole on their back. But I don't think that necessarily makes you the mouthpiece of Almighty God. But if you tell me something's going to happen 200 years and it happens, now we're talking. 
If you tell me something's going to happen before it happens, and this is what Jesus is saying here. This is the testimony of the scriptures. This is what sets the God of the Bible apart from Islam, apart from Buddhism, apart from all other false religions in the world, is that God says it's going to happen before it happens, and he puts his stamp of approval on his revelation by bringing it about distinguishing himself as the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes unto the Father but through him. And so, friend, don't bank your eternity upon lies and false religions. Bank your eternity upon a God who knows the future because he's in control of the future, who's given us a sure and certain revelation that is without error. You can trust the word of God You can trust Christian truth. It's not going to lead you astray. There's no other religion in the world like it. None can claim prophecy like the God of the Bible can. And so don't be foolish and trust in some false religion. Or don't try like the ancient Israelites to try to cover your bases where I have a little bit of this religion, a little bit over here. You know, me and Jesus are still tight. No, no. He wants all of you. Be fully devoted to him. It's true. His word is true. Well, we see the prophecy of David that points to the purpose of God, the prophecy of Jesus that points to the person of Jesus. Now, lastly, the pawn of Jesus. And this is really nothing new in this point here. The pawn of Jesus we see in this passage is Judas and Satan. They are pieces on the chessboard of the Almighty. But it's really a poor analogy because pawns don't make choices in chess games. Those behind the pawns do. But they are instruments That while they seek to defy the God of Israel, while they seek to defy the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, while they seek to defy the throne of David and the mission of Jesus, they wind up doing God's bidding. Not willingly. And this is really a pattern in the scripture. Pattern throughout the scripture. We see it early in the book of Exodus. We see evil Pharaoh in his wickedness as he sees the fertility of the Hebrews and he sees them multiplying and growing. And so he decides that he's going to murder the baby boys of the Hebrews. And so he instructs them to have the baby boys thrown into the water. Is it not poetic justice that Pharaoh himself goes to a watery grave midway exodus? As the waters of the Red Sea close down upon him, his chariots, and his military. We see it in the book of Esther where wicked Haman, the Hitler of the Old Testament, seeks to commit genocide and have all the Jewish people murdered. And he has this great plot and great scheme, so he he builds this huge gallows, which which, uh, 
usually we envision a hanging, but the way in which the Persians did it was impaling. So he has this huge giant stick for this impaling that's going to take place of his arch enemy Mordecai who refuses to bow to him and all the Jews are going to be murdered. But by the end of the book of Esther, it's not Mordecai or any other Jew on that impaled stick, but it's Mordecai, I'm sorry, it's Haman himself. There's a lot of names this morning. It's easy to get confused. Don't judge me. And you see what all this is, my friends, it's, it's really goes back to Genesis chapter 3 where God speaking says that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent's head. That the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent's head. And really all throughout the Bible there's this looking towards the seed and all that Abrahamic promise and the promise of the seed and, 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 and there's this wondering who's that seed going to be and then there's more promises that are given later on then to David and then there's this anticipation of the coming of the seed. And you read your Bibles enough to know that the seed is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, what we have here at this Last Supper, as Satan begins to inhabit Judas, is this attempt to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And to be sure, there will be a bruising as nails are driven through the feet of the Messiah. But there is also a crushing of the head of the serpent. Because here it is that death is destroyed. Here it is that God in his purposes and wisdom puts his foot upon the head of the serpent. And the fate, the destiny, the judgment of the serpent is sealed ultimately to be cast into hell. And eternal life is paid for for all the elect of God as Jesus dies upon the cross. And he will see his offspring, his seed, according to Isaiah 53, and be satisfied. And all this, my friends, was through the wicked, responsible choices of Judas and Satan behind Judas. And so again, my friends, ought we not to take great encouragement that despite the opposition in this world to Christianity, to any vestige of Christian truth, God wins. The mission of Jesus triumphs. Jesus is in complete control. But we would also be remiss to not 
receive a solemn warning from this passage. Because what's shocking here is that (coughs) when Jesus told them that one of them was going to betray him, they didn't all look at Judas and say, yeah, I knew there was something fishy about that guy. That evidently Judas outwardly was able to give a veneer, an appearance, a show that he was a follower of Jesus, but he was not so inwardly. And so he stands as a warning. And what's shocking is in the midst of all this, there's no evidence from the passage that Jesus skipped over Judas when he was washing the feet. In the midst of all this, Jesus showed tremendous kindness even to Judas. Perhaps there might be a Judas in our own midst who outwardly can give a show, but it's not inward. And I want to tell you on the authority of God's word, even today, that Jesus perhaps is giving an offer of grace with a morsel to you this morning, saying you don't have to continue to play the game. You can come clean. You can come clean and confess. Jesus is a merciful Savior. He is kind. You may have been inwardly thumbing your nose up at him for a long time and outwardly just kind of keeping a show. But if you but come clean, he'll forgive. Turn to Jesus this morning. Turn to Jesus before it's too late. Because the same hands that hold his disciples forever are the same hands that shoved Judas out the door and ultimately into hell. Be on Jesus' right side. Let's pray.